This is Kim Jones of WFAN Radio and NFL Network. You are listening to The Bridge with John Lund. Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. What's it like to be a reporter for the NFL and former clubhouse reporter for the Yankees? We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 85 of The Bridge. Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you missed the live show, you can always catch the podcast version of The Bridge, which is available 24 hours after the initial broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode and additional content from the show on Thursday nights. On iTunes, under The Bridge Sports Podcast, or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text in to the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. The behind-the-scenes world of college basketball is more terrifying than what one might find when flipping over a large stone. Corruption, cheating, and scandal have long been the American pastime of college hoops, but as more stones are turned, the underbelly is unfortunately revealed, as was the case this past week when the FBI dipped their toes into the muddied waters while the NCAA watched. It's time for the number one news anchor parody segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Red Like Real News. College basketball is a billion dollar industry, but one that hasn't necessarily risen to the top with pure principles. Players play unpaid. The term student-athlete for star players is thrown around more loosely than teenagers using the word literally. And coaches will do just about anything they can to get the game's next players. There seems to be more scandal, cheating, and corruption in the NCAA than in House of Cards. But while money continues to flow like the rivers of Babylon, it becomes easier and easier to sweep those things under the rug. Enter the FBI, who put together their own investigation into a wide-ranging college basketball corruption scandal. The allegations claim that 10 people were to be arrested, including the director of global marketing for Adidas Basketball, who paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to bribe top prospects to attend colleges who were sponsored by Adidas, with assistant coaches at each school also arrested. According to the AP, the probe revealed numerous instances of bribes paid by athlete advisors, including financial advisors and associate basketball coaches to exert influence over student-athletes. 
Federal prosecutors also said at least three top high school basketball players were promised payments of as much as $150,000 to attend two colleges that were sponsored by Adidas. Those two schools? Miami and the University of Louisville. The latter school has been under the brightest of lights in this latest scandal courtesy of head coach Rick Pitino. Well, most likely former head coach, but we'll get into that shortly. Pitino, as you may remember, hasn't had the cleanest of slates in recent years. In 2009, Pitino was part of an extortion attempt from the then-wife of his equipment manager, where we learned that years before, in 2003, they hooked up in the bathroom of an Italian restaurant, something that you probably wouldn't find in a Billy Joel song. Patino said of that encounter, quote, it took less than 15 seconds, end quote. And insert your jokes here. The lover got pregnant. He paid for the abortion had his equipment manager drive her to the clinic, and a year later, the lover and the equipment manager were married. Someone get Billy Joel on the phone. She was sentenced to prison for trying to extort cash, cars, and a house in 2009 and released this past summer. The next Patino scandal came in 2015 when a former escort wrote a tell-all book describing the on-campus party she helped put together for recruits that included strippers and prostitutes paid for by Patino's graduate assistant. Rick, of course, said he was completely unaware that such parties were going on under his watch. Louisville, in turn, gave the program self-imposed sanctions and did not participate in the 2016 NCAA tournament. Though the NCAA followed with its own punishment in June, deciding this year that Patino would be suspended for the first five ACC games of the upcoming season and that all games involving ineligible players should be vacated. Louisville appealed. And now, this latest FBI investigation discovered that Louisville, still currently under probation for the sex scandal, paid $100,000 to a basketball recruit's family to get him to attend the school. Rick released a statement on Tuesday night, saying, quote, The allegations were a complete shock to me. End quote. On Wednesday, the University of Louisville placed head basketball coach Rick Pitino and athletic director Tom Jurich on unpaid administrative leave. Pitino is currently the highest paid basketball coach in college hoops at $7.7 million in compensation and would receive close to $38 million more if he completed his current contract, which runs until 2026. Louisville has to give Patino 10 days written notice and an opportunity to be heard before outright firing him, a firing which, according to Darren Ravel, would leave $55 million on the table. As for Adidas and shoe deals, where much of this stems from, Patino said in 2014, quote, We need to get the shoe companies out of the lives of young athletes, end quote. Louisville and Adidas currently have the sixth largest shoe and apparel deal in college athletics. Ten years, $160 million. Apparently, what Patino said in 2014 fell on deaf ears. To go even further, the daughter of the Louisville athletic director, who was also put on leave, also happens to be an Adidas employee after joining the company this past March. The biggest story thus far, it appears that the coach involved in adultery, bribery, strippers, recruiting scandals, and hiding a life lived as a true vampire 
won't be able to slither his way out of this one. More and more will come from this investigation. While we watch the slow unraveling of the NCAA, like a morphine drip at a hospital bed. Just don't mess with our March Madness. I'm John Lund, for sports news, read like real news. Let's take a quick break to listen to One Shining Moment. When we come back, we'll talk to an NFL reporter and former Yankees clubhouse reporter about her career in sports media. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text in to the bridge 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text in to The Bridge. This week, we want to know, what is your biggest storyline currently in the National Football League, and why? Now to this week's guest in Kim Jones, a reporter for the NFL Network and NFL.com, who you've also heard on WFAN and have also seen on the Yes Network. As a Yankees fan, Kim was on my television for several years, including for the last World Series championship won by the Yankees in 2009, and couldn't have been more kind with her time and in being completely open throughout the entire interview, and I certainly thoroughly enjoyed getting to hear about her career covering sports. We chatted about her start in sports media and humble beginnings at a small newspaper before working her way up to becoming an NFL columnist, then from making the switch from football to baseball and from journalism to broadcasting and moving to the Yes Network. Kim will share some stories about covering the Yankees, going back to the NFL and joining the NFL Network, and a very honest and interesting take on how reporting on the sport has changed with the recent protests happening throughout the National Football League. You can follow Kim on Twitter. She's at Kim Jones Sports, common spellings for all three. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Kim Jones. She's a reporter for the NFL Network and NFL.com. You've also heard her on WFAN and seen her on the Yes Network. Kim, thanks so much for joining the show. How are you? I'm great, John. It's my pleasure. Oh, it's my pleasure as well. I've been listening and watching your work for many years now, especially from your time with the Yankees. Before getting into that, I thought we could turn back the clocks a little bit to get started when did you first fall in love with sports and realize you wanted to pursue a career in sports media? As a little kid, and I always loved not only sports and pretty much every sport, but also writing. And my dream was to write for Sports Illustrated. That will probably never happen. But uh, to be a writer, a newspaper beat writer, and, and cover many sports, including high school sports, college sports, pro sports and to have the opportunity that yes afforded me back in 2005 and now to be at NFL Network um, I'm very happy and just I am so grateful because I still remember being a little kid watching Georgetown basketball games and writing about them in a little notebook so it's been a long time since then but it's been great. Right the writing I guess continued once you got to college and Penn State University studying journalism and ending up getting it seems the job that most young writers get where you're covering high school sports, but in this case, lucky enough as well to cover Penn State sports, including the football and basketball team for a local paper around in-state college. I know that's not the most glamorous of jobs, but how did your time there help in developing your writing style and even knowledge in the newspaper industry? Yeah, you asked a really good question and you asked it really well, John. Um, it was, it was at the Center Daily Times. I believe back then circulation was about 30,000, I want to say. 
And uh, we did high schools. We did Penn State. We were the local Penn State paper, but we he had we had five high schools in our region as well. So some some days I was at a field hockey practice. Some days I was at back then a Joe Paterno press conference. So it was great. Learned how to literally put a paper together. Literally on Friday nights, the sports department was in charge of signing out the paper. So there were times that I'd be the last person there to look through the paper, make sure there weren't any f bombs accidentally in a headline or something. And then you literally signed your name to say, "Go ahead, it's ready to put to press." So uh, I don't know if any of that <laughs> happens anymore, to be honest with you. But I do look back very fondly on those days. Um, I also attended bar and waitress. Uh, at that point in my life. So I look back on those days as busy days, but a lot of fun and really learned a lot. I think anyone currently in the business, at least young people in the business, are nodding their heads at that. The odds and ends jobs <laughs> that you sometimes have to do as well that go along with the actual job. There's really no rest for the wicked. And you move on from there to the Star Ledger and end up becoming a beat writer for the New York Giants become an NFL columnist as well a little bit more pressure in a sense from going from maybe a lower circulation to now having more responsibility was that a difficult transition for you or something you were able to pick up maybe more quickly just based on your experience to that point it was tough uh, my transitions have all been with growing pains. And, and I, you know, when people say, people in any walk of life will sometimes say it takes a year to adjust to a job. And I, I actually believe each of my job changes has taken a year for me to adjust. And it was tough. It was a different environment than I was used to. Uh, it's obviously a lot busier here than it is in Pennsylvania where I grew up and also where Penn State is. So uh, it was a different life. I was by myself uh, for the most part. Uh, it, I knew it was the right move, and at that point, it was such an honor to join the Star Ledger Sports Department. Jerry Eisenberg led the way. Mike Vaccaro was there. Steve Politi, Tom Lucci was covering everything Rutgers, and I'm leaving some people out. Brad Parks was there. Um, I, I believe he did some basketball. I know he did some basketball, but he's also a great feature writer. It was really. Um, Dave D'Alessandro, who covered the New Jersey Nets at that point. It was a, a star-studded group of people who uh, you kind of had to measure up. Manish Mehta was there at the time, now at the Daily News covering the Jets. So and I'm, I'm sure I'm leaving some people out accidentally, but it was uh, pressure in the sense of I was really challenged to be good enough for that section, and I was supposed to cover Rutgers. I did cover Rutgers for a, a couple of games at the end of their 2000 season, but then there was an opening on the Giants beat, and I ended up covering the Giants in 2001, and that was that was really the start of me thinking, okay, I, I might want to focus on football and focus on pro football because I had already always been a college sports person, and then you know, lo and behold, a few years later, life changed significantly. But the Star Ledger challenged me in a way that for which I'll always be grateful. Speaking of transitions, it's an incredibly difficult transition from going from a keyboard and a pad to now in front of a camera. Moving to the Yes Network in 2005 as the new clubhouse reporter, what made you decide to take that leap from journalism into television? And what ended up being those early challenges that you mentioned you faced? Well, you know, John, they called me during the Super Bowl in Jacksonville. And I, yes, reached out, the Yes Network, John Filippelli. And I just couldn't go to the auditions. Um, obviously, I'm covering the, the Super Bowl, which is a full-day job that week. Um, I couldn't certainly sneak away for a day. Um, they were having their auditions, and I essentially politely declined, even though I was surprised they reached out in the first place. Fast forward, they called back, said, we'd love to have you in. And at the audition, I was not good, which was a bit of a, uh, you know, it foretold the future there, because for some reason, bless their hearts and bless John Filippelli from Yes, they offered me the job. And John, I literally remember thinking, and my literallys are literally in this case, uh, this opportunity is not coming around again. It, they, I wasn't going to get a second chance at a TV job like that. And I might as well make the leap. And I put some thought into it. I thought I could do it, but really it was more sort of on a wing and a prayer. I, I, I thought it would change my life, and it did. The first year, a lot of growing pains. I was not live in front of a camera. I was not used to television's pacing. 
the soundbite way you almost have to speak, the way you have to present a, a story. I was used to telling a story with words on a piece of paper or on, a, like you said, a keyboard, of course. Uh, I had to tell it with my voice, and, and sometimes you you get sidetracked, and that story doesn't come out very well. Sometimes you're talking about news. I had never covered baseball specifically. So that that was an, an incredible challenge for me to sound natural talking about a sport that didn't come naturally to me and that I had not covered professionally at any level. I had done some high school uh, baseball games, but, but that's not what we're talking about, obviously. So lots and lots of challenges. I remember a lot of people being patient. I remember being frustrated with myself, and I remember believing that it might be a failure. And it turned into seven wonderful years, but with a lot of growing pains at the beginning that I think now help me understand uh, when people struggle uh, and when I struggle with work uh, and with this profession, because um, I certainly struggled in 2005. And you're having to grow up, in a sense, in front of the camera in one of the hardest markets to have to do so, with critics coming not only from the newspaper and radio <laughs> of New York, now there's social media involved as well, when you can spend an entire night reading people's comments about what they yeah. might not like about what you might be doing. How are you able to overcome whatever the lowest point from that might have been and continue to push forward <laughs> and find the confidence, really, to be able to do what you were doing? You really ask terrific questions, John. Uh, I had know, to be prepped to interview Kim <laughs> Jones. You know, you can't just come in this blind. <laughs> I appreciate that. Twitter, thank God, wasn't in existence in 2005. It started a few years later, I think, or at the very least, I didn't discover it until a few years later. Uh, so I wasn't uh, in the Twitterverse, which, thank goodness for that, 140 characters would not have been kind for, to me on many nights. I did find New York Yankees message boards that just ripped me to shreds, and I read them. And I, I listen, it, it wasn't it wasn't great. Um, I do think it forced me to get better. I do think it. Sometimes you do learn about your flaws from your deepest critics. I am a big believer in that. It's not pretty. You don't want to hear it. It's not what you woke up in the morning or stayed up at night hoping to read, but it does force you to look in the mirror and to face reality. And in some cases, they were right. There were things that they pointed out that, that I did work on. I remember seeing Leslie Visser, the great Leslie Visser, at the end of my 2005 season. I was in a game in Philly. It must have been a Giants-Eagles game, and I was probably there. Uh, we did a football show on Yes, plus I you know, did some work on the fans, so I must have been there under those responsibilities. And Leslie Visser looked at me, and she said, you have to wear eyeliner on television. And it was something simple like that and kind of you know, funny like that. And I don't necessarily expect everyone in the audience to, to connect with that. But I, I truly in 2005 made a lot of mistakes out of not knowing, made a lot of mistakes out of perhaps not being receptive, uh, made a lot of mistakes out of just being so new to all of it. So yes, I read the message boards. I took them to heart. Some nights it was not easy. Some things were more uh, some of the just criticisms that are name-calling and that sort of thing, listen, you read those and you almost have to dismiss them. But there were others that really were constructive. And I still to this day think that you learn from people who write, talk, tweet, whatever about you. Uh, they're not all to be taken to heart or to be taken very seriously necessarily. But the ones that, that are constructive, I do think you can learn from. I learned from them back then uh, some very hard lessons. They were some tough nights because I knew I wasn't very good at my job. So, um, but you ask good questions. You're right. Message boards give a lot of feedback, and a lot of that feedback isn't always, you know, hey, great job tonight. Well, by the time the Yankees win the World Series in 2009, you're basically a seasoned veteran for the Yes, yes Network after goodness. these transitions. Is that the career highlight, in a sense, from your time with Yes, or does something also rival that from the 2009 season? It's, it would be tough. It would be tough. A championship is so fun, and a, a World Series with the Yankees and the Core Four was still there, of course. Um, Alex Rodriguez, Nick Swisher, Johnny Damon, the pitching staff that obviously uh, star-studded Joe Girardi, of course, who I had worked with at Yes, and then, of course, uh, succeeded Joe Torre. It was magical. It was fun. Hideki Matsui, who was awesome. Um, it was. It was just really, really cool to be a part of it. Not out-of-body experience cool, but like looking back, I, I remember some some moments. I remember the champagne. I remember some highlights. Um, I remember some pregame 
um, stuff. And it really was magical. And I wish I had kept a diary. I wish I had kept notes, um, maybe for my whole time at Yes, although that would be a very big diary over seven seasons. But at the very least, the 2009 playoff run, I wish I had more clear memories of it because it was so spectacular and it did ultimately end as we all know in a world championship which was just so cool was it more difficult to keep your composure during Derek Jeter's <laughs> champagne shower or the accidental shaving cream to the face while interviewing Nick Swisher <laughs> I think Jeter because I was surprised it was him you know it was it was fun it's it, it it's actually is a great I guess screen grab picture I'm not sure it's an actual picture but I think it's a, a screen grab from someone's TV. I don't know. Maybe it is a picture. Who knows? Photographers were in there. But um, it's a great picture. I get a kick out of it when people tweet it at me. I love it. It's fun. Uh, always always will have great respect for Derek, for a lot of those players. Um, and I always thought, John, that especially in my early struggles, it was a clubhouse with Derek Jeter as a captain where things never went haywire for me. Randy Johnson wasn't always the most pleasant person, but that would have been the case in any clubhouse Randy was in. Uh, that's more a reflection of who he was. But in terms of being treated professionally and be, being treated with patience, uh, I always I always suspected that the Jeter as captain played a role in that, at least to some degree. And I would be remiss to close out the Yes Network days without talking about the moment that I'm sure a lot of people are waiting on bated breath for involving what happened in Minnesota in 2010, an event that's on your Wikipedia page. So I don't know if, <laughs> if that makes it more worthy of discussion or if people just have this stuck in their mind. And it is hard to forget as a Yankees fan, for people that don't know, a drunk fan took a bite out of a pork chop on a stick that you were holding during an in-game report in Minnesota. Now, now tell me about, I know you've been walking around the stands. We oh, love yeah. the ballpark. Just visually, how about underneath with the concessions? Have you come up with anything interesting? Two words for you. Pork chop stick. As in pork chop on a stick from the State Fair Classics concession stand here. You can also get walleye on, the, on a stick. That's very popular. I hear it's the state fish. But they, really, I can't believe this right now. I've lost control of this, but I guess it's good. It's cold, I'll tell you that. But anyway, lots of concession stands here. The State Fair, very big in the Midwest, huge in Minnesota. And pork chop on a stick. Al, I was going to bring it back to you. No, thanks. Wait, no can that guy just bit it? I, I, I didn't bite it. Oh, that's just disgusting. I can't tell you how revolting it is. Uh, now you should give it to him and throw it down his throat. You if you go away, you can have my pork chop. <laughs> uh, here's the replay of the guy biting Kim's pork chop. <laughs> Look at this. Look at this guy. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Kim's had that for three innings. You know how cold that is? Kim, just move away from that guy. Thanks a lot. We'll see you in the postgame. Thank you. How does one handle an event like that, those two to three minutes where you have to, again, remain composed and deal with what was going on there? Well, first of all, it's in, I guess it's in my nature. I look back now and wish that I had just completely thrown caution to the wind, let him eat the darn pork chop and laughed my way through it, and maybe even tried to interview him, although I believe he was inebriated to a point where I'm not sure it would have been the most constructive interview ever done. But I'll, I'll tell you what, here's another thing that's perhaps a sign of the times, John. I can't tell you how many people have reached out and said, was that staged? And it's more now who asked me that than asked me that at the time. I can't imagine in my lifetime staging something like that. I can't imagine the Yes Network staging something like that. That was 100% reality TV at its finest. And I'll give you the background of how it happened. Target Field was new, so we wanted to kind of showcase Target Field, which is a gorgeous uh, baseball stadium. And they had walleye on a stick and pork chop on a stick. Well, the walleye might not have handled the, the weight, if you will, and I'll explain that in a second, as well as walleye. So we went pork chop on a stick. We bought it, I want to say, 90 minutes, maybe two hours before you saw me with it on TV. Uh, it was Michael Kay and Al Leiter doing the game that night. I believe it was Al. I, I know Michael was there, and I, I do think it was Al. And we 
we put it in like a plastic bowl in the booth. So here's this pork, you know, sitting out for, you know, who knows how long, a couple hours, in the, it just in the booth, in a, you know, because I wasn't going to eat it. No one was going to eat it, we didn't think. So it's sitting there, and it's time for my report, and I grab the pork chop on the stick. We're going to talk a little bit about Target Field, and then the rest kind of unfolded as you would have seen it if you watched the clip. I'm standing there. I'm kind of – someone told me later that the funniest part was – I was I talk with my hands, so even if a pork chop on a stick's in my hand, I'm probably going to talk with it. Well, I did, and as I was doing that, the the guy was trying to take a bite out of it, but kind of missing the mark because it was a moving target for him. So, you know, it it is funny. It was it was not planned. I remember saying it was repulsive, and I remember a few people like kind of telling me to lighten up. But what I meant was what I just told you. That was pork that had sat out. On a you know a warm day, not not scalding hot, but a warm day for a couple of hours, and here this guy wants to to eat that pork. So when I said repulsive, it came across maybe a little bit stronger than I wanted, or a little bit more uptight than I certainly wanted. But I meant you know, dude, if you want to eat this cold pork chop, have at it. The other thing, and I'll leave you that story with this: the guy was a Yankee fan, and the reason we knew that it was the third, I guess third, maybe fourth, but I think third game of the series. And the Yankees were going for a sweep. Well, John, he had one of those mini uh, brushes with the dustpan around his neck, the kind that, you know, you might have in a laundry closet or, you know, in your, you know, below your sink in the, in the, in this kitchen. He had one tied around his neck because the Yankees, he was ready for a sweep. So, you know, it was just hilarious. It really was. And it's a moment that I think we all now just chuckle. Uh, yes, it, it, uh, uh, being honest with you, it surprised me a little bit. I think it was when the Yankees were in Minnesota, or maybe it was around the date of the anniversary of this whole thing. Who knows? But the Yes Network retweeted that clip this year, and I thought that was really cool of them. And I, I think a lot of people, I hope, got a kick out of it. I know I did. It is a fantastic moment in broadcasting history and i will <laughs> i'll attach the video in my show notes for anyone that has yet to see it Thank because you. it is definitely worthy of a watch that now leads to you coming back to the nfl and moving to the nfl network and you've already mentioned the difficult decision these big leaps of faith in a sense are in sports media and in your career how was that decision for you to leave Yes after seven years and go back to the NFL with the NFL Network? Yeah, you know, it was one of those situations. My contract was up. I wasn't going to break a contract. That's not necessarily in me, I don't think, to do that. I mean, I, I'd like to say that I would not do that. Um, my contract was up, and I had thought, John, baseball for me in terms of lifestyle, travel, and that sort of thing had kind of run its course. And I've talked to Michael Kay about this. I certainly have talked to John and Susan about it. They've done it for years and years, and I have great admiration for them. That life was not great for me. Um, uh, it's obviously a very hard schedule. Again, I admire them greatly. Uh, I, I was willing to start to see if, if maybe there was another outlet, maybe there was another alternative, not for any negative reason about yes or the job itself, but the grind of the travel and the everyday almost in the summer and um, the, the family things back home in Pennsylvania that obviously I would have to miss. I mean, first of all, there's the travel to Pennsylvania, and then there's also the idea, well, there's a baseball game most nights. So um, it just made more sense, and, and I was really lucky because NFL Network came calling um, at, at that time, and timing-wise it worked out. I thought it made sense. Um, they they offered me a job initially, but I would have had to move to two to one of two different cities, and they gave me a choice, which one? But they wanted me to move, and I said no. Uh, and I had a Yes Network offer on the table, and I had the NFL Network offer on the table. And if I would have had to move for NFL Network, I would I would have stayed at Yes. And it turned out NFL Network then came back and said, Well, what if you can stay exactly where you are? And I said then you know, then, then we're, then we're good. So that's how all of that worked out. Um, it wasn't quite the, you know, it didn't have the feel of a, of a leap of faith the first time as it did the first time when I went to yes, it was football, which I had covered for the star ledger. I wasn't moving. Um, so I was able to, to stay where I'm comfortable. And I had done TV at that point for seven years. And on a day to day to day basis, that's the best part of baseball. If you're a broadcaster, it's so, 
it's so regular. It's it, you're getting daily reps, and when you need to improve, as I did, um, you have a real opportunity to improve because day after day you have a chance to be better than the than the day before. And that that I do remember embracing very strongly, not only as the 2005 season unfolded, but in 2006 as well. The idea that hey. Every day you can get a little bit better. I'm not sure that happened, but after those seven years, um, the move to NFL Network felt, you know, pretty natural. Right. I don't think fans sometimes realize that while players are going through a grind of an 162 game season as well as the postseason, so too are the media that covers them, the workers that are with the team as well. So it's not like you just get to go to work three or four times a week. You're with the team as well and battling conditions and everything that they have to go through in a season. Not to say that the NFL is anything easier. It's just maybe a little bit more time to relax with just one game a week. Right, and I am not, just I want to be clear here, I'm not complaining at all. I'm just right. trying to, you know, men, you know, when you ask about moves or reasons for them or what it was like to make that decision, there are lifestyle things that that do come into play at times. But no, it, I am I am as grateful as a person can be when I think about my career, which isn't over yet, thank goodness. But when I think about my career and the opportunities. I've had, and I'll tell you one funny baseball story if you want to hear it. We were in Kansas City. I don't know if it was my last year or not, but it was my, it was either 2010 or 2011. And I was talking to Jeter in the clubhouse, and you mentioned conditions. Well, it was like August in Kansas City, and it felt like 118 on the field. And he's like, yeah, it's hot out there. I said, my problem is I'm going to sweat through this shirt. I had like a greenish-blue shirt on. I would do an interview on yes if the Yankees won, like a walk, not a, not a walk-off win, but a walk-off interview. As you know, Meredith does them now. Susan does them on radio. And I'm in the camera well, and it's either the eighth or the ninth inning, and the Yankees are running back onto the field. Jeter looks over at me and points at his armpit. And it was hilarious because I truly had sweated through the shirt. I mean, it's 118. You know, in in the in the uh, in the camera well there, uh, we had a we had a uh, thermometer that was reading you know ridiculous temperatures. So it was just very very funny, um, and a, and a, just one of those moments that, as little as it is, you know, I've remembered for a long time now. And now you move from something like that to games where it might be ten degrees. So there's yeah. always something to <laughs> yeah. do with. Good point. Yes, yes. Green Bay can obviously. Green Bay was very very cold. In January, the the uh, Giants playoff, the Giants playoff loss. And by the way, I almost just called the Giants the Yankees. I've done both of those things on the air. I have also called the Jets and the Bills each other because of the Rex move. So I, I do sometimes confuse my teams, but I certainly know the reference. Yes, it was very cold in Green Bay. <laughs> Would you be able to offer a Cliff Notes version of sorts for the listeners that might not know what you're able to do on a day-to-day basis now with the NFL Network? What a typical week is like, I guess you would say. Sure. Oh, sure. Well, I get my schedule. The one thing about the NFL, I get my schedule. Uh, we used to get them Sunday nights. Now we tend to get them Mondays. Uh, we have Monday schedule on Friday. But as far as the whole week goes, so you do have to be flexible, and that's how it, that's how it goes. Listen, the New York Giants, as you and I talk, are 0-3 that they ultimately become less interesting to our network the more they lose, barring something crazy happening, of course. But um, so I will be traveling to a typical week this week. I will go to Giants tomorrow just to kind of check in with them. I am working on a written piece right now that will be due in the coming days, and I will uh, need a lot of time. I will take a lot of time to work on that. And uh, on Thursday, I will go to and from Foxborough. Um, for daily coverage of the Patriots. I will then come back Thursday night. Friday, I will do some of that writing. Saturday, I will go back to Foxborough. Uh, I will set the alarm for 4 a.m. Sunday. I will be on the air as early as 7 a.m. Sunday, although maybe 7.15, maybe 7.45, but as early as 7. We're on until 1 o'clock. We're on through the pregames with our shows on NFL Network. And then, obviously, during the game, uh, I am not on television. So I go up to the press box, get a bite to eat, watch the games, catch up. Inevitably, I catch up on the Giants or Jets, the teams I'm not with, the team I'm not with, in some cases, the teams I'm not with, as much as I can while watching the game live. We do some post-game, often a a one-on-one interview. Uh, Certainly, we're in the locker room getting sound. Uh, at lockers and that sort of thing, talking to players. And then in this case, I will drive home 
Sunday night, and then it'll start all over again for the following week where uh, I looked at the schedule ahead. It's hard to predict where I will be for the following week. So it, there's a little little bit of unpredictability, which I like. I get to see more. T- Some people will say to me, I thought you just covered the Giants, or I thought you just covered the Jets and Giants. And that's not the case, even though um, staying home is something I really enjoy. But, but I also, uh, you know, for instance, during the playoffs, Obviously, those teams are not always involved in the playoffs, and I'm jumping off to other teams. And in the Super Bowl, certainly I have another team as a beat that week. So I get to see a lot of the teams uh, in our region, and I really do enjoy that. No rest is, is what you're saying. Things are a little bit busy. When the NFL I, had today, I had today off, and I cleaned my house. John, in my world, that is a complete victory on a day off. <laughs> well, this is perfect timing on my part, Ben, to catch you in That's between right. the cleaning aspect. You did. You did. It's terrific. When it comes to the National Football League, and we've mentioned that you've covered several different ranges of sports from high school to college and, of course, Major League Baseball, what's different? in the NFL, whether that might be the, the speed of the game, the athletes that you're around, is there something specific to reporting that's significant or unique to the National Football League? Well, here's what I said when I initially made the transition back to football from yes. In the NFL, every game's a big game. Um, because, And we've seen this with the Giants already. We saw the Jets get a big win Sunday against the Dolphins. Uh, a, a win that means a lot for a team, you know, that a lot of people expect nothing from and that is growing as a young group. But every game's a big game. Um, the, the dog days of summer, to some degree, take over in baseball. You can understand that. There are teams that are very good teams that have lulls throughout the season in baseball, maybe several lulls or almost certainly several lulls. It is just such a long, unforgiving season for the players and coaches in particular. And in football, Really, every game is at a premium. And I remember the Giants playing, and I think, John, it was the Cleveland Browns in maybe week three or four back in 2012. And I could be wrong about these details, but that's at least what I remember. And I remember standing on the sideline before the game. It was either Cleveland or Tampa Bay. And I remember saying to myself, this is a big game on you know September 23rd or whatever the date was. And it feeling really cool that it was a big game because the Giants needed to win. And, I mean, you feel like they need to win that early in the season. So I, do, I think that's just a difference. It's a once a week compared to, you know, six or seven times a week in the other sport. And in baseball, you don't catch your breath. You just move on. I don't care if you're a player, broadcaster, or someone in between. You screw up in baseball, you just move on because the schedule's not stopping for you. In football, we dwell. We dwell on a, mista- a broadcasting mistake by me on a Sunday morning. I, I, I have days to dwell on it. We dwell on a team's loss. We dwell on a player's bad actions. We dwell on a quarterback's miss. We, you know, we have time to really it's, – it's, it's the nuance in football – versus just the turning clock, if you will, in baseball. They're vi- and baseball, to me, is a much more nuanced sport. But the, it's, it's, it's a, I'm not doing a good job of explaining it, but their schedules are just, it's almost like they are completely different entities, even though they are both obviously professional sports and popular ones. Right. There is definitely a uniqueness to it, and I'm sure that's one of the things fans appreciate about it because, as you mentioned, every game counts a little bit more than the next one, and the seasons become a little bit more exciting in a shorter amount of time than, say, a baseball season does. When yep. it comes to what you do as a reporter and as a broadcaster, I know you're not necessarily in competition with other broadcasters or reporters when you're getting post-game or pre-game quotes from players or you're in a press conference trying to get a good quote, but you have the opportunity with your work to maybe get a little bit more closer to the players and tell different stories than you're able to find on, say, a national stage where you just get a lot of the cookie-cutter quotes from what a player is saying to the national media, and you have relationships with players where you can maybe dig a little bit deeper with them. Is there something you look for in your storytelling to maybe find something that people don't know and and bring that to the public throughout the week? Yeah, it's it's funny you ask that. I had this conversation with someone not that long ago. On NFL Network, generally speaking, when I am on camera by myself in a news format, 
I have 40 seconds, generally speaking, and that goes very, very quickly. You can feel like you get a lot into those 40 seconds. You can also blow past those 40 seconds, which is not the ideal for anyone involved in the broadcast, including the reporter, which is sometimes me doing it. So you have about 40 seconds. I usually think, John, of a word. I know that sounds silly. I also think of the handful of sentences I can get in in 40 seconds, but there is usually a word in that piece or that that report, I should say, not piece, that report where that word, I want to be what a viewer remembers, or a couple of words strung together, whether they are turning a phrase of some sort, although I, I don't know that I do a ton of that, or something that I'm, I'm repeating that a player or a coach said to me. So you have to think in that sentence, in that, in that scenario, I believe you have to leave the viewer with something that he or she might talk about at the proverbial water cooler. doesn't always work. But that's how I think. Now, at NFL Network, I also have the um, opportunity at times to do what we call roundtable conversations. Those are ideal when I'm out in Culver City with my colleagues and we're truly sitting around the table and we'll have five, four or five, whatever minutes to talk about an issue. That's awesome. I love that. That is much more sports talk radio to me. And that's what I, re- I do. I do love to do that as well. Sometimes we'll do a quote unquote roundtable, but I might be, let's say, at the New York Giants. One of my colleagues might be at the Chicago Bears, and two other colleagues might be in Culver City at our studios in California. So those have a little bit of a different feel to them because everyone's not in the same spot. But in those, you know, you're talking about having a minute and a minute and a half to sort of present your case or your opinion or your reporting. And those, again, those are more like they're not they're not sports talk radio, and you don't have unlimited time like you do at the like I do at the fan, or at least I feel I do at the fan, but you at least have time to have more of a conversation where you might mention what someone else said before you, or you might mention something that I suspect one of my colleagues at a, you know, who's been with other teams might have something to add. So that to me is more conversational. They're very different kind of ways to approach what ultimately is the same product, which is reporter on NFL network. And I really, I I try to have fun with all of it to the degree that you can. I I don't ever want to do shtick, whether it's radio or TV. I don't ever want to say this is going to be fun and then try to make it fun. But when it's spontaneous or when it just simply works, that's when I leave a broadcast feeling the best. When I feel like we've not only maybe helped to educate or helped to supplement what the sports fan already wants to hear, but then we also have a little bit of um, natural fun that comes along with it. To wrap up on one of the current topics in the NFL, because as we mentioned as well, the Giants being 0-3 and the Jets trying desperately not to beat any teams, but unfortunately struggling with that as well, while they might tank for a new quarterback or whatever their new goals may be. We did have one of the most exciting weeks of the season this past Sunday, but we did also see the line between sports and politics erased in a sense with comments from the president, peaceful protests from the players in response. It was something that was unavoidable this past weekend. And obviously your job in the media is to get to the bottom of what the players think and to find out what's on their mind, especially in a serious issue like this. In the past couple weeks, maybe in this season in general, given the political climate, what has happened between politics and sports, has that affected your line of questioning or, or maybe how you try to approach players talking about this specifically when it comes to their feelings about what's going on in the real world rather than what's going on sometimes just on the playing field? John, for me, it's changed everything. Uh, first of all, your future is very bright given the questions that you ask and the preparation you do. So I look forward to knowing and seeing what you do as these days, months, and years go by. But um, I am someone now, and I'm speaking, I want to be clear on this. I am speaking solely for my, in my world, my, pre- my preference, my social media, my WFAN, my NFL network work and livelihood. I prefer stick to sports. If you look at my Twitter feed, I didn't tweet about the election. I didn't tweet about, which is, I know sounds ridiculous maybe to some people. I just choose to keep that private because I truly don't think people care what I think. And part of me also 
doesn't want to wade into that. I don't want to be a complete open book necessarily. Um, I want to be the best reporter I can be, and whatever comes along with that I think is great. But I'm a sports reporter. So, again, I'm speaking solely for myself. I am not in any way criticizing anyone else's choices because we all have them. It changed dramatically because there was, like you said, no avoiding it. And I was in the giant locker room after the game. NFL Network will tell us which locker room to focus on because there's only one reporter there, and in this case it was me. And in this case, because the Giants dropped to 0-3, they thought they would be more compelling, and, and I would I would have agreed with that kind of, with that with any team at zero and three as opposed to a team improving to two and one. The better locker room in terms of interest, in terms of intrigue, is the zero and three locker room. So we were there. And I thought Olivier Vernon was eloquent, talking about how he's a first generation American, his parents from two different countries, dad in law enforcement, retired for twenty five years uh, in uh, in South Florida and how he felt he had to kneel. Landon Collins saying he almost broke into tears as he kneeled because he loves this country. And I found it interesting. I found it compelling. I believe the players didn't just in any way, shape, or form brush this off. They took it very seriously. They knew that it was a weighty decision, whatever they were going to do. And it did change because that has not been uh, the road that we've gone down a whole lot on NFL Network or the road I would prefer to go down, but there was no denying it was the news of the day Sunday. And um, I thought the players uh, explained themselves very clearly. And I thought that they came across very well because you could tell that for all of them, it pained them uh, to be in that spot. It wasn't like, at least the ones I was around, it wasn't like they relished an opportunity. They were saying, essentially, I felt like I had to do this to do what I believe is right. And, you know, I certainly, um, I certainly respect, you know, all of their opinions. And I thought some of them really were eloquent um, in very real ways, not practiced ways, not scripted ways, but just eloquent in just being real. And to me, I thought that was very effective to hear from them. To end on a happier note really quick, will you miss Mike Francesa when he's gone from the fan and you guys <laughs> won't get to banter together? Won't we all? I don't know that I've ever gotten over not missing uh, Mike and the Mad Dog. And now Mike's leaving as well, uh, December 15th. I am still in the believe it when you see it crowd, although as it comes closer, I guess it really will happen. So he's a legend. He's obviously had the greatest of radio careers, and, and certainly he will be very much missed by all of us who listen to WFAN. Thanks so much for coming on to the show and peeling back the curtain in a sense on what you do in the industry, what you've done in sports media, both in the NFL, in with Major League Baseball. It's been a pleasure getting to follow your work for so long and also get to hear about how it's gotten done up to this point. Maybe we can talk again down the road if the Giants and or the Jets do well. I'm sure people would love to hear you back if that is the case. But again, continued success in everything you're up to, and hopefully we can do it again down the road. Anytime, John. Just reach back out to me, and thank you so much for having me. Thanks again to Kim Jones for jumping on the show. We'll now jump into the toll booth with Donnie Wrightside. Donnie is a professional handicapper who knows a thing or two about the lines of the sports world and will be joining the bridge for a weekly segment to help get us on the right side of those lines. Each week, Donnie will offer up some of his best bets to correspond with the bridge fade of the week, where listeners are urged to completely go in the opposite direction of myself. Since my own wallet will be opened and I usually have no luck at all finding any success. It was a tough go last week for listeners, however, as the bridge fate of the week was the Atlanta Falcons laying three at Detroit. They won by four. Golden Tate was in the end zone. Garbage. Alas, for the upcoming weekend with the line set as of this recording of the show, the bridge fade of the week is the Pittsburgh Steelers laying three on the road against the Baltimore Ravens. Now to someone who actually knows what he's doing, you can find Donnie at DonnieRightside.com and at SportsBookReview.com and also follow him on Twitter. He's at RightSideVP. 
And remember, this segment is for entertainment purposes only. Without further ado, here's this week's edition of The Toll Booth with Donnie Wrightside. Has anybody got a dime? Oh, yeah. I don't have a dime. Somebody's got to go back and get a shitload of dimes. Oh. Hey folks, Donnie Wrightside here from DonnieWrightside.com and SportsBookReview.com coming to you on the bridge for a gambling minute here. Hey, you know when you have to cross the bridge, you have to pay the toll. We're going to pay the toll for you this week. We have a double header of action in NFL play this weekend that we want to take a look at. We're going to go with rotation 255, 256, 273, 274. Why those two games? That's the Los Angeles Rams versus the Dallas Cowboys and the San Francisco 49ers versus the Arizona Cardinals. The reason we like these games is a couple key situations here, and it deals with rest in the NFLs. We all know the more rest, the better the body heals, the better the game plan can be. And also, we have two teams that are coming off of short rest, both playing against each other on Monday Night Football. That was the Arizona Cardinals and the Dallas Cowboys. Dallas Cowboys did pull that one out over the Cardinals, so both these NFC tilts looking for some victories here. We're going to take the points in both of these games. First up at 255-256 on the rotation, we're going to lean on taking the Los Angeles Rams getting six and a half points currently here at the time of filming, so we'll go with that one. Second game, we'll take a look at 273-274. We're going to take the San Francisco 49ers over the Arizona Cardinals. We'll take those points there at plus seven. Reason why we like these games here for us, folks, just to give a little bit of a breakdown here on the bridge. Week one, if we take a look at the Thursday night game, not a true Thursday night game by all aspects because it's an opening night. Both teams had some equal uh, playing time, equal, obviously, time to prepare for that game. But Kansas City played New England, both of those teams obviously playing on a Thursday night when everybody else played on a Sunday or a Monday had some extra time to prepare. How did that work out week two? Kansas City, which opened up versus New England, obviously beat the Eagles and covered the point spread in that one. If we take a look at New England versus New Orleans in that week two tilt, New England won and covered the point spread as well. If we move that over to second week, Cincinnati played Houston on a Thursday night. Following that week with extra rest, Cincinnati played Green Bay into overtime, covered easily the seven-point spread and almost won the game outright. Similar situation, Houston, which played Cincinnati on that Thursday, they played the New England Patriots and almost beat them as well, easily covering the 13-and-a-half-point spread. If we take a look at a similarity coming into this game as well, the 49ers, uh, all played the Rams previously. Obviously, we're going to take both of these teams in opposite situations, but they played on Thursday night. Some extra rest. Both the teams they are facing played on Monday Night Football, so we're going to lean on that equation. A perfect 4-0 to start the season in that type of situation, so we're going to lean on taking the points with the Los Angeles Rams getting 6.5, and, and we're also going to lean on the San Francisco 49ers getting 7 points in their game. Hope we helped you out here. That was the bridge crossing the toll booth. Let's pay those tolls, and I'll catch you next week. This has been Donnie Wrightside from DonnieWrightside.com and Sports sportsbookreview.com. Good luck this week on your wagering, folks. Left side! Strong side! Left side! Strong side! Left side! Strong side! Left side! We'll close out the show with another installment of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. Joe and I have been teammates on the basketball court, sports editors for our college newspaper that is no longer literally in print, and hosts of the prestigious John and Joe Sports Show, found live on 99.5 WUSR Scranton and the Royal Television Network. Since Joe usually sees more movies in a year than the 52 weeks within it, he now holds the reins to this segment. And don't worry, there aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to see these films, just with a better breakdown of what will be in store if you do so. And with Joe's analogy to the film compared to the sports world. This week, Joe will break down Kingsman The Golden Circle, which Rotten Tomatoes describes as a new challenge for the Kingsmen. When their headquarters are destroyed and the world is held hostage, their journey leads them to the discovery of an allied spy organization in the U.S. called Statesmen, dating back to the day they were both founded. In a new adventure that tests their agents' strength and wits to the limits, these two elite secret organizations band together to defeat a ruthless common enemy in order to save the world. 
You can find Joe on Twitter. He's at Duke Mish. That's D-U-K-E-M-I-C-H. You can also read his movie reviews, previews, and ratings at cupof-joe.com. Again, that's cupof-dash or hyphen or whatever you'd like to call it, joe.com. Without further ado, here's this week's edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. What's up, everybody? I'm Joe Burris. And this is Five Minutes in the Film Room. Kingsman the Golden Circle is the much-anticipated sequel to the smash hit Kingsman the Secret Service. The first Kingsman shocked me with its quality and originality, especially because all signs pointed to a misfire in front of its 2015 release. The trailer didn't sell the movie well, I didn't believe Colin Firth could serve as a viable action star, and the movie's release date was pushed back from Christmas Day of 2014 to February of 2015 usual dumping ground for studios poor films but Kingsman the Secret Service proved us all wrong as it preceded the recent uptick in the quality of films in that month which include Deadpool and John Wick chapter 2 I was wrong about everything Firth was excellent Samuel Jackson was a fun villain and Taron Egerton proved a rising star the action was shot in a very original and fun manner with the church scene leading the way cementing itself as a classic sequence it was over the top and fun proving the best spy film of the year during a movie season where Daniel Craig's fourth go at James Bond, Spectre, was released. For Kingsman, The Golden Circle, the expectations were the exact opposite of its predecessor. We know what the great director Matthew Vaughn can do with this property. What a tall task to have to try to outshine a movie that gave us something fresh and new that made $414 million worldwide. A movie that thrived on its over-the-top sequences. So how do you get more over-the-top than over-the-top? If anybody can do it, Vaughn can. But did he? Let's go to the tape. Kingsman the Golden Circle opens with a solid action sequence to jump the audience right into the movie, and in a way following the formula of the Bond franchise. After that, the movie struggles to move forward. As we all saw in the trailers, Kingsman is destroyed. But what I didn't expect was the death toll. I won't spoil who, but I think it's important to shift your expectations. This movie struggles with tone. I went to the movie expecting for it to not be as good, but still deliver a fun time. I didn't anticipate so many characters dying and feeling bad about it. Unfortunately, that was just one of the areas Kingsman the Golden Circle was bogged down. The 2 hour and 21 minute runtime is just 12 minutes longer than its predecessor, but Kingsman the Golden Circle feels too long. There was just too much going on. Colin Firth's character, as we saw in the trailers as well, is still alive. The expectation is that we could pick up right where we left off with his character, but we don't for reasons I will not spoil. And it takes forever to get him back on the right track. And there are a lot of those scenes and subplots that drag. Scenes that could have worked out better with a tighter runtime. Instead, there's a lull in the middle of the movie that leaves you kind of bored and looking at your phone to see how much time is left in the film. Not a problem I expected to encounter in the Kingsman franchise. Also, this movie includes what I originally thought was a cameo from a famous singer that turns into a role. Again, he would have been better utilized as a cameo because the humor wears off after a while. Kingsman the Golden Circle finally picks up during the final 45 minutes when they finally get Firth back out into the field and the action gets moving. Although there are no sequences that live up to the church slaughter in the first installment, Kingsman the Golden Circle gives us some very crisp and well-shot action scenes. That is where the movie shines. When it gets back to what worked in the first one, the movie delivers. Everything they tried to add in just didn't really work. Firth, Edgerton, and Mark Strong once again give solid performances, and I really enjoyed Julianne Moore as the villain, although her robot dogs were a little too cartoony. The main plot is strong, too. If the film had just focused on Kingsman being destroyed and the main plot that followed, knocking out some of the death and subplots and cutting it to the runtime by about a half hour, I think we'd have a solid sequel. The bottom line, Kingsman the Golden Circle left me disappointed. The film starts with a solid action sequence, but got bogged down in trying to do too much with the plot and adding too many emotional moments, which led to some rough tonal shifts. As a result, unnecessary scenes stretch, and it takes too long to get to the fun. When the movie finally focuses in on the main plot, it gets back to what we loved about the first one. I had fun at times, but it just took too long to develop. Living up to the first installment is admittedly an impossible task. 
but John Wick Chapter 2 proved that it's possible to follow up with another solid film. This suffers from sequelitis by adding too many subplots instead of focusing on the simplicities that made the first one great. I plan to revisit this, but as of now, I'll rank Kingsman the Golden Circle as a field goal, because sometimes a drive has so much potential, but a few drop passes in the red zone lead to three points instead of the much preferred seven. Sexy. Check! Good. Uh, check, please. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Thursday night. And also be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. You can also find episodes of The Bridge on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and the TuneIn app live on Wednesday nights at 7 Eastern Time and again at 8 Eastern Time by searching for Sports Radio America. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dive into Major League Baseball, dabble in the NBA, circle the wagons of the National Football League, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.